certainly living in interesting times. As the COVID-19 crisis continues to impact business across the globe, companies are often finding themselves having to send employees home. With mass gatherings cancelled, clients are no longer meeting at the watering holes they once did. The one device that continues to keep us digitally connected is our mobile phone, regardless of the circumstances. As such, social media is a heightened channel for sales and marketing teams to do business. So how are these teams adapting to this new norm? In this original podcast series brought to you by Octopost titled Globalization, we'll be exploring some of these items. Today, the 24th of March 2000, it's my pleasure to be joined on this podcast by Chris Skinner. I'm Colin Day, Managing Director of EMEA at Octopost. Ladies and gentlemen, um, it is my extreme pleasure to have a very good friend of mine, uh, Chris Skinner, join us on this podcast series from Octopost. So Chris, look, you are probably one of the most social people that I've come across, right? You look, you look worried there, right? And I'm not talking about social <laughs> as in like um, the drinking social. I'm talking about the way that you use social media and have used social media to build up your brand, get your message out there, um, talk about the industry issues and topics that uh, you're, you're following and, and you want to influence. So, and drinking. And, and the social side, <laughs> drinking as well, which is how you know, we've met on a number of occasions. But um, you know, just, just for the audience, right? those that um, haven't had the pleasure of coming across Chris Skinner, the man, Chris Skinner, the financial services commentator, Chris Skinner, the best-selling author, because you've got a number of books and we'll, uh, we'll get on to those, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, you know, if, if you think about um, you yourself and someone said to me, what's Chris all about? I'd turn around and say, do you know what? He's the guy that's helping shape the future of financial services, right? And you know, whether you do it through media such as these books, very good read, by the way, um, or whether you do it through the, the, the daily blogs that you put out there, whether you do it through the tweets or through the, um, um, yeah, the, the presentations that you, you do up on stage. I did a little bit of research about you before uh, we came on air, and I noticed that your Twitter account, you've got about 50,000 um, followers. Right, and just mm-hmm. to put that into context, I have nowhere near that. But just to put that into context, mm-hmm. a lot of the banks that you talk about and try and influence don't have anywhere near that at all. Right. So if you looked at DBS, for example, twenty six thousand point eight followers. If you look at uh, BMP, right. So bringing it, uh, you know, to Europe. Okay, they've got sixty nine point seven thousand followers. HSBC have got a hundred uh, sorry, hundred eighty three thousand odd. Or Wells Fargo, 300,000 odd. But if you look at you as an individual, you as a man, you're, you're one man, and these organizations are, are tens of thousands of people. And in some instances, you've got more, double. In some instances, you're there or thereabouts. And in other instances, maybe they're, they're six times the size. So what do you uh, put that down to? I mean, it's like, um, you know, how do you, 
what are they what are they doing differently to you and what are you doing so right well in some ways it's because banks are antisocial <laughs> and so they haven't been using social media effectively for a long time i had to educate people in the banks you just named for example about what, what facebook was how to engage people on linkedin and twitter uh, and in many instances um, those institutions ban the use of such um, websites during work time for their employees and then they woke up and thought actually it's a way to engage customers so they started to change the attitude but more as a way of um, monitoring customer feedback and managing customer issues rather than um, trying to actually engage with the customer in a conversation um, and I always remember one particular large bank saying to me that their worry was because of uh, compliance and regulation that if they interacted with customers in any depth then there may be account compromise because account details are released on Twitter or on Facebook uh, or equally that they have recorded a conversation that was not a, legit a legitimate conversation so banks with social media is a big topic it's something that they haven't quite got to grips with in most instances Wells Fargo, who you mentioned, in fact, were one of the first that did get to grips with it. And I always remember, uh, I was just 10 years ago, hosting Tim Collins, who was their head of experiential marketing in a presentation in London. And one of the things that he was talking about is how they started blogging. And the main reason they started blogging is twofold. One is that it was the celebration of... Um, I think it was 80 years since the San Francisco earthquake, which is a huge problem at the time for California. But the second was that um, if you Googled Wells Fargo 10 years ago, the number one website that came back was wellsfargosucks.com. And they kind of didn't like that. That's, um, that's not good PR, right? <laughs> no, it's not good PR, uh, particularly if you're experiential marketing. Um, so they started blogging and... They got a lot of flack to begin with, a lot of feedback from customers saying, we don't like you, we, you know, we don't like how you treat us. But by engaging with customers in conversations, they ended up finding that because you responded, then you started to get a very positive discussion going rather than a negative discussion. It would start negative because the customer's never been listened to before. Right. And then it would start to become positive because you're actually engaging with the customer and listening to them. And I think that's been the big issue with most banks, that they are frightened of engaging with customers in an online environment and an open, transparent environment. Uh, in my own instance, the reason why I'm so ahead of the curve, according to what you just said, uh, I guess is yeah, because that's I was me picking you up, not you picking yourself up, well, by the way, right? Okay. It, it's it, because I was, it, I, was, right? I was there very early on. Um, yeah. uh, the reason I was there early on is that... Um, someone said to me um, 12 years ago, would you start a blog? And because I'm completely stupid, I decided I'd blog every single day. And I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, and I tried to compete with you at one stage, Chris, and failed miserably. So uh, I remember those days 12 years ago, my friend. <laughs> I'm still hey, but, going. But, uh, but if we think about, I mean, this book, right, which is The Digital Human, and this really sums up my life, right? But um, if we think about uh, The Digital Human and what you're a best-selling author now with four books under your belt? Uh, or three and four, three and a four, how many? 16? 
Yeah, th there's only four worth reading. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, and Chris, just to rattle those off, right? They've they've typically got digital somewhere in the name. So you started out with the digital bank in 2014. You've got the digital human. You've got doing digital, and then you've got value web, right? Yep. Yeah. Um. And and you got um. You know. Obviously, digital is ingrained into you, into your ethos, into your DNA now. You've been doing it for so long. We might as well call you Chris, Mr. Digital Skinner, right? But um, you know, you, you've talked a little bit um, in this book, or you talked a lot in this book about you know, the, the transformation of, of money, right? And you talked about um, you know, the, the fourth um, industrial revolution, if you will, um, and and you've taken us nicely through through all those different stages, but it all starts with with the tribal effect, right? And creating a tribe. And really, what you've just described there about what Wells are doing, and and um, you know anyone else using social, it's it's really a way of amplifying that message to the tribe and the tribe that they're building. Right? Your tribe is fifty. Um, you know, plus thousand individuals that follow you on Twitter, plus everyone else that reads your daily blog. So, could you just give us, um, you know, some some thoughts and some pearls of wisdom around um, how do you how do you keep that tribe engaged, right? Because it's not about just um, putting messages out there, because those messages could be perceived as spam, right? It's, it's how do you ensure that it's the right content to the right audience? I think one of the key things that came out of my writing Digital Human is the emergence of revolutions of humanity based on uh, relationships and communication. And so the first revolution was actually becoming human uh, rather than being an ape. The yeah. second was about becoming um, sort of community-based and civilized uh, based on what's happening in Sumeria, Mesopotamia, and the ancient civilizations of the Northern African Middle East communities. The third revolution was about becoming commercial and becoming global and creating empires. Uh, and then the new revolution is becoming completely connected between everyone peer to peer. Uh, and that's obviously through the network that we have today, which is being severely tested today because you know, I think we've all took being global for granted. And then suddenly all the airports and airlines shut down and you go, what do we do now? <laughs> um, so we're going through that uh, questioning phase. But take that away, regardless, we are all connected peer to peer. So the fact that you and I are having this conversation between Warsaw and Essex is because we have this device called the internet. Uh, which does enable us to have peer-to-peer -peer conversations and peer-to-peer -peer transactions and peer-to-peer -peer relationships and peer-to-peer -peer payments. And that's the massive difference, that regardless of what's happening with the coronavirus and the rest of the world, the fact that every human on Earth can trade and transact and talk real-time, globally, 24 by 7, is amazing and fantastic. Now, obviously if the internet didn't work at this particular point of time, I think we'd all be going batshit crazy. Yeah. Um, and some of us are anyway. Give it a couple of home. weeks and we'll probably all have <laughs> cabin fever, right? Well, you know, being stuck at home with kids and um, partners is something else. Uh, in fact, one of the 
amusing studies I saw recently is that the number of divorces will rise significantly in the next few months, as will the number of new pregnancies. Um, but whatever happens, the fact we have this global connectivity through the, a network uh, is a hive mentality, a tribe mentality. It brings us together. It enables us to share our um, enjoyment or our uh, angst during this major period of change, which we've never had before. You know, just um, you know, 10 years ago, we were just starting to get this tribe connectivity globally. But um, it's only been really in the last five years that it's really come into the mainstream. You know, just in the last five years, so going to what we're saying about digital human, uh, we've seen most of the African nations, South American nations, Asian nations, China, moving to mobile payments, mobile wallets, and peer-to-peer -peer connectivity. Um, that's taken people who were unbanked and given them banking. In India, it's quite stunning that in 2012, only 35% of Indian citizens were banked. And in 2019, 80% or more are banked. You know, that has happened because of low cost, global reach, easy connectivity. And, and just picking up on that global reach, right? And, um, you know, the, the global economy, the you and I have met several times in weird and wonderful places just by chance of being on an aeroplane and sitting in a, a an airport lounge somewhere, right? And normally we're we're berating the airlines that uh, we've we've just travelled with because there's been some form of delay. But putting that aside, if we think about the the global economy that um, you know we we've experienced, right? And we're very lucky and very fortunate because we've been to a number of of countries around the world and I know you've probably been to more than more than most but what lessons do you think we can learn um and bring to um the fore today to to help people in in this uncertain time I mean you talked just then quite eloquently about um really you know everything we've done globally, the, the network infrastructures that are in place to support the unbanked or, or ensure that the unbanked become banked and, and give them banking options or, um, you know, this wonderful thing called the internet that, uh, um, that we've all discovered. Um, but, but what, you know, if, if you were to boil it down, what lessons do you think we could learn from the global economy as we all hunker down in our, in our, you know, local local sheds and local bunkers for the next couple of weeks that that can keep us sane, keep us connected, and and keep us informed and engaged. Well, I think the issue we all have today is that we took travel for granted, we took the yeah. world for granted, and suddenly losing access to um, networking physically is creating a big question around what does that mean for our jobs and our livelihoods. Um, for some of us, it means we're moving into virtual connectivity. You know, uh, Google Hangouts and Microsoft Team meetings, Slack are going through the roof uh, because that's the way in which people are um, c c maintaining their networks. Yes. And some businesses that were born on the internet um, were born this way anyway. They understand that connectivity. Uh, and so we talk about remote working. Uh, for some people, it's actually no big deal. You know, I've been doing remote working for 20 years. Um, a lot of people in new fintech startups have been doing remote working for uh, all their livelihoods. I think the big issue for uh, the majority of 
uh, employees, and by that I mean people who are based in offices, is suddenly that's completely messed up their lives. Um, because not only are they having to find a new workplace with um, their office at home, but that workplace is going to be severely disrupted by having children at home, partner at home, uh, and less access to the network that they normally deal with. And I think what's going to be interesting, um, and I blogged about this the other day, is that it'll lead us to a lot more virtual remote connectivity and working. And so what was a emerging trend will become a mainstream trend. The idea that you can work from home will become something that uh, large corporates will say, you know what, we had to do that for three months during a crisis. Maybe we should do that for the next foreseeable because it reduces overhead costs, it reduces real estate costs, it reduces uh, you know, the whole travel time um, overhead of our employees. And our employees were effective during this period. Some employees will not be effective. This, you know, this is going to challenge them. Um, but it's a, t- a time of change. Uh, again, I blogged the other day about who, you know, who moved my cheese. Yep. One of my books that I love because yep. it's all about you, you wake up and you know, the day is not the same. How do you deal with the day not being the same? Well, you have to change. And if you can't change, then you're going to be suffering badly during this period. If you can change, you'll find there's huge opportunities, particularly remote working and virtual connectivity. So, so Chris, in the just following on from that, in the um, you know the industry that you you follow and and commentate so well on, most of it's regulated. It's all regulated, right? So, you know, in regulated industries such as financial services, what do you see as some of the do's and don'ts for firms using social media? You, you talked about governance, and you talked about um, um, you know some of the the clients or. or some of the conversations you've had historically have, have been around firms barring access to uh, to social media platforms from within inside the firewalls of the organisation. The world we operate in at the moment, there is no four walls of the organisation, right? The four walls of the organisation is is our houses. So, so what do you see as some of the do's and don'ts for um, you know use of social media in those in those regulated industries? I think the biggest issue for most banks is that they don't really want to empower their people. Uh, Historically, banks have been very much command control and because of the regulated compliance environment are very risk averse and fearful of uh, an employee doing something that is not within set parameters and limits. Um, But it's quite interesting if you take the other view which is where you do empower people, uh, you get a stunning results. So First Direct is a good example in the UK, a bank without branches that's always been um, digital-based, you could say, telephone-based, um, yeah. always been number one in the customer service results. And the reason is they don't script their employees. They tell their people, be you, you know, deal with customers as though... Empowerment, right? It's empowerment. Yeah, yeah. as though you're humans. (laughs) So if if you take away the humanity of the job, then that's when you get robots that don't like it because we're not robots. Um, So I think what's emerging now is that a lot of what would have been done by humans that is robotic is going to the chatbot. It's going to the artificial intelligence machine. And what will that 
then leave ourselves to do is to do the relationship building remotely and digitally, which is something I've been advocating for a long time, which is that um, you never lose the humanity of relationships, even if you do everything on a remote basis. You have to have that humanity of relationships and you have to bring that into the engagement and the environment. And if you don't have that, then I think customers don't feel engaged, staff don't feel engaged, and you lose a lot of what's really about work and life. So that's the critical focus right now, which is how do you give your people the ability to be human and engage with customers as humans? Yep. Yep. You might want to script it a little bit, right? But you you empower the employee to, to modify or change that script as they see fit. Right. Because the, the regulated piece, you know, yep. the, the, the bit we fear uh, because of compliance, control and regulation yep. um, is actually quite a small part of the relationship with the customer. You know, that's about account numbers, sort codes, transaction details, uh, age, address, etc. Um, and the things that actually customers shouldn't be talking with any employee about. Um, right. And we have a duty to educate customers that if you get a call from the bank saying we think you've been compromised can you give me your pin number don't give them your pin number because we'd never ask for it you know uh, and one of the uk banks has been doing quite a good advertising campaign in that context and i think that's critical there are things you never talk about on the telephone or online but then there's a lot of other things you can talk about like how are you doing, Colin? Uh, what's your hobbies? You know, uh, can I help you with enjoying a better lifestyle because you enjoy going to uh, the football stadium, even though you can't right now? Um, maybe we can fund you a season ticket. One, one day, one day. Yeah, but it's, it's stuff like that. It's, it's building yeah. a relationship around the things that are nothing but, to do with money. But what you're doing then, the account right, numbers. What, you, what you're doing is your 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 social selling, right? I mean, you're you're probably one yeah. of the best. Um, social sellers that, that I've come across, right? And and you're not doing it overtly. So, you know, there's more to social selling than simply conversations on social networks and jumping into conversations. And, you know, there's the small matter of credibility. So how do you ensure um, that you're seen as, or, or how, what's, what's your advice for people listening to this to ensure that they're seen as, um, or how do they ensure they're seen as industry experts when they are jumping into those conversations or when they are posting um, you know, material socially? Well, I mean, if you take what I do, um, my blog has never had advertising, uh, and it has had sponsors a long time ago, but today there's no sponsors. Um, and I do that purposefully because, as you say, I'm socially selling based on the fact that I have knowledge and content that people are interested in and I'm not a bad presenter, so they invite me to come and talk to them. Um, I think what's interesting from a bank's perspective is that if you can build the ability for a customer to think, you know, I think these guys, I can actually talk to them. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying about Wells Fargo earlier on, you know, that I think I could engage in a conversation with this bank that's more friendly rather than more fearful. Because another thing I come back to regularly, whether it's in big corporate business or in personal uh, bank relationships, the biggest fear we all have is money because that's what enables us 
to survive. Right now, I'm fairly sure there's a huge fear amongst the population worldwide around how they're going to survive for the next few weeks in this current crisis. Uh, I mean, you've seen that, right? That. You've seen that in supermarkets that uh, they yeah, yeah. there, right, of, of bare essentials. But you, take, but you take it a step further, you know, if, if you're in a position, and luckily I'm not, but I know people who are, where they're not even sure they can last for another two weeks right. financially, yep. and they don't know what to do, you know, they don't think they can get a loan, they don't know what to do, talk about it. Um, but yep. it's very difficult to do that because it's one of the things we fear most in our lives. The regular surveys that come to me that say we're – more open about talking about our sex lives than our financial lives, for example. Um, and by a factor of many, you know, it's like four yeah. times more likely to talk about my sex life than my financial life. In my case, no. <laughs> In your case, maybe. <laughs> I, won't ask, I won't ask you, Colin. Um, <laughs> I can't come back from that one, Chris. <laughs> but it is interesting that, you know, it is the, the one part of our life that is our most secret part of our life. Um, our money, our finances, our bank balances. And that's the bit that is the reason why we hate banks because you know, most people, if you talk to them, they don't like banks, but it's only because the, the bank is dealing with something that they fear the most in, the, in their lives. If you're gonna allay that fear and help them, it makes a huge difference. One of the things I'm just blogging about right now, actually, um, it's a bank in the US, a small community bank called Citizens Bank in Edmonton, not the big Citizens Bank that used to be part of RBS. Yep. Just put out a tweet yesterday saying, we know that you're worried and so you're reassured. Any credit you have with us is um, you know, postponed for the next two months. Don't worry about it. I've not seen any other bank tweeting or sending something like that on social media. This small community bank sent that. And it's being shared everywhere because they're saying that's leadership. If you can tell your customers, don't worry, you know, we're, we're, we're there for you. Don't worry. You know, that's what we need right now. And we're not seeing enough of that. So I've got another question for you and totally changing tack, right? We've talked about social. Is email dead? Ah, um, email is for boring stuff, a bit like banks. <laughs> so big old banks are there for doing boring old bills. Email is there for doing boring old contracts. Um, it's for doing the admin stuff, sharing documents that need formal sign-offs. Um, most of my work these days is on Twitter, uh, WhatsApp, Slack. Um, and WeChat when it comes in to, uh, Asia, you're a big WeChat. Uh, WeChat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I really only ever open email because I'm looking for a contract. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so Chris, thanks for sharing um, all of that, uh, that insight with everyone. Um, how can people follow you? I mean, look, how can they become one of the, uh, the, the 50,000 plus herd that, uh, um, that you've got following you at the moment? Uh, at Chris underline Skinner on Twitter. Uh, I'm very active on Facebook. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can buy one of my books and my new one is doing digital coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and doing digital is different because I got fed up with people saying banks are stupid and they don't understand technology. Um, banks 
do understand technology, just that they don't understand how to convert from being physical and analog to being digital and data-based. Uh, and so the new book is all about the banks that are doing that rather well, like JP Morgan or BBVA. And Chris, that's coming out in April, did you say? April 7th. April 7th. Can people get an advanced copy? Like, um, can they pre-order it on uh, on Amazon or other uh, other e-commerce sites to, uh, to all, exist? All, all reputable bookstores, but yes, Amazon is the one that um, has it up there ready and running for pre-order. Excellent. I'll uh, go and order my copy now, my friend. Chris Skinner, thank you so, so much for your time and thank you for joining me this morning. No worries. Nice to see you, Colin. Checking out, Chris. Thank you.